In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or on your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. field people will come and it doesn't happen you have to look at how you're doing business hello welcome to a new episode of your favorite white Sox podcast white Sox business uh, on today's show we're, we're going to discuss the latest in the lack of negotiations between mlb owners and the players union and we'll also prepare you for the mlb draft did did you know that it takes place next week because time has lost all meaning for me but it does it's wednesday june 10th and it's only one day now uh, it's it's even crazier that a league is having a draft take place during a time in which that league isn't playing any games. Can you can you imagine like a sport actually doing that? Crazy, uh, wild. Yeah, I mean, what? Also, we have to prepare you for the draft. We have FanGraphs lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen on the show with a nice lengthy interview. We talked to him about the draft, teams preparing for the draft, and of course about White Sox prospects. And we'll get to all that in a little bit. But before we do. The basic question for you, James, are we ever going to see baseball again? This is actually like a poll in the athletic uh, MLB writer Slack. And um, I was like the most optimistic person just because I assumed that uh, the brutal machine of capital will find some way to force across a product that will be consumed and paid for with money. So, but uh, I think actually Keith Law was more optimistic than me even because we were like rating on one to 10, but um, yeah, I, I think we will. I think we'll probably be deeply unhappy about some measure of how it was delivered to us and how it got agreed to, but I think it will happen. For what it's worth, I, I tweeted a poll from the Right Sox account this morning before we started recording. With The question was simply, will there be a 2020 MLB season? And so far, 59% of the over 700 votes are saying no. So yeah, optimism not high among the among the proletariat. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the latest on it, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich reported on it at the Athletic on Wednesday. Here, I'll just read the I'll read the the beginning for you. Major League read Baseball, the whole thing. I'll read the whole fucking article. S- cancel your subscriptions. White Sox business now just reads you Athletic articles. It's it's like an audio book. Read some hockey next. All right. Major League Baseball on Wednesday rejected the Players Association's proposal of a 114-game season and told the union it would not send a counter, again leaving the parties deadlocked in their quest to begin the 2020 season. The league, according to sources, also informed the MLBPA it has started talks with its owners about playing a shorter season without fans and that it is ready to discuss additional ideas with the union on that subject. The impasse over player pay, however, shows no sign of abating. The league will not make another proposal. The union, after agreeing to prorate its salaries in March, remains steadfast that its members will not accept a second pay cut and does not plan to negotiate against itself in Jesus fucking Christ, James. <laughs> Abating. Baiting. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. I I still think that something is going to get done. But, man, this is this is frustrating as shit because I understand that both sides have to do – we. T- they have to take their stupid fucking hardline stance at the start simply because that's what they've always done. But they're approaching this like it is November and we've got four months till players report, let alone until the actual season begins. And if they're going to even get to like that 80 game season, which happens to be the sweet spot between a 50 game proposal and a 114 game proposal, they need to get the shit done quickly just to even get that if they're truly serious about not wanting to go into November. And that's also handled a little bit in the story. And that owners don't want to go into November because they say that they're scared of a second wave of COVID-19, which is a legit concern. It's just I don't think that's as much of a concern to them as it is like their TV Competing partners. Competing against NFL yeah, broadcast. TV partners not wanting them going into November. and because It's a 
cover for the real concern. It's very plausible, but I think if it was actually what they were up against, they wouldn't give a shit. If they were truly concerned about the health of the players, they wouldn't really be pushing this hard for a season. It's about getting as much money as they can out of what they're going to lose and shortening the loss as much as humanly possible. But yeah, so congratulations to you at least because you were correct on your prediction that there would be no deal by June 1st because it is now June 4th and still nothing. How does it feel to be the smartest baseball writer alive? Uh, it's, it's lonely at the top, Tom. Uh, you know, I, I, I can just see the balding heads of all my colleagues below me, uh, from my, my city on a hill, um, <laughs> balding heads and widening waistbands. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I almost, uh, you know, I, I wish I could be a man of the people, but you know, just some people, eh. they, they don't have all the luck. Uh, well, that's, that's what, that's coming from the smartest baseball writer in the industry let's let's now turn to our interview with the smartest prospect writer that we interviewed today for sure and maybe in the entire industry i don't know will keith law come at us now with like a hatchet we'll find out but here is our interview with fangraph's lead prospect analyst eric longernhagen eric thank you for joining the show thank you for having me on i uh i'm glad i didn't shave it all i'm sorry this is not a video podcast uh having seen me this morning i am happy that it is not a video podcast yeah it's getting to that point of of quarantine here in arizona where um our stay at home lifted a couple weeks ago and now our cases are on the rise and it's also 109 degrees every day and so i've just been in and it it does look like i've been in one place for the last three months now like it's starting to show on my face it's one of those situations where you can go outside, but why the hell would you want to? Yeah, I. If you, this is where all the instances of human spontaneous combustion occur. I think are in Arizona. <laughs> well, uh, like I mentioned, the the MLB draft is next week. It starts on June tenth. Is the date? It's Wednesday, right? That it starts. Yes, it is obvious. It starts. It's the week. only day now. Yeah, who can remember? <laughs> well, what what do time and dates mean? But. This is clearly, this is a very weird draft, not just with the fact that it's been shortened to five rounds, but, you know, there's been no live games to watch. There's been no live games for teams to scout. And as a prospect analyst and somebody that's paying attention to the draft for you, it changes your approach. So how has this year, with all of these changes, how has your approach to this summer's draft, you know, changed? Yeah, the... It's odd to think that this is, but this is totally true, that I have seen a greater percentage of the relevant baseball for this year's draft than in any draft before it, because so much of, especially on the high school side, so much of the relevant baseball occurs the summer before. It's the high school showcase circuit, it's the Cape Cod League, and then during the spring when guys start to pop up, guys who have changed over the course of the offseason... Uh, you know, the information lag as baseball is occurring simultaneously all over the country, uh, it, it's, it's hard to maintain that garden of information, right? Like there are, you have to, you have to weed it. Uh, and without any baseball going on, there's, there's not a whole lot of new information to miss and try to catch up on. You're not constantly calling scouts around the country trying to see what team personnel are where for your mock. You're not trying to see what new uh, pop-up arm in Texas there is um, that you that you hadn't heard about previously. And while some of that stuff certainly occurred over the first six weeks of the of fe- late February, early March, uh, when baseball was being played in some of the warmer weather parts of the country, there just ha- it hasn't been uh, like the hamster wheel of info that we typically have during the spring. So that's one change. And then there are all the the ripple effects that uh, sort of blow out from that, like uh, what? How do we put together a mock draft this year? It's it's one thing to talk to agents and team personnel about what they think is going to happen uh, in front of them, or what the agents are hearing, what teams are calling them to talk about their clients, uh, and then the, the piece of the mock draft that you know, like seeing GMs at games in May is a signal about who those teams are interested in. And we just don't have that this year um, as an industry. So uh, there's going to be a, a wider margin for error on that stuff. And then the five round 
team approach, uh, how that changes. Uh, what do you do with you're not going to draft 40 players anymore. You're only going to draft five. Does that change your approach? Does the signability of players uh, matter more and in what way? And then you have the team financial components and how that might play into uh, what they're going to do, although it seems less likely to have any sort of impact than was initially feared. Will the team-by-team team, uh, owner-mandated uh, budgetary restrictions impact the way they go about drafting? And so, yeah, it is a super bizarre year. It'll be hopefully unlike anything uh, we experience from here on out because it certainly has been unlike anything we've experienced at this point. How have you been able to pull yourself away from all the minor league action going on to focus on the draft this year? <laughs> oh, man. You know, it's weird. Like, there's there's a, a showcase. You know, these, these private showcase businesses are not subject to MLB guidance, right? So while MLB has mandated that teams cannot scout players uh, and that players are allowed to submit video for uh, two teams – via like a portal that all 30 teams have access to and, and they can submit data as well. Uh, there is a, you know, a third party company prep baseball report that is just having showcases right now in the middle of this pandemic. So like there is baseball to go see teams are not allowed to go see it officially. Um, you know, I would like to think if there was one happening in my backyard here in Arizona, I would use my better judgment and not go. But um, I am itching to watch some baseball. I went for a walk in a local park several weeks ago, and a, 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 a large group of the, the Indian folks uh, who live here in Tempe were playing cricket, and I stood and watched for, for 15 minutes. Um, I just want to feel normal again, too, and so I'm, I'm desperate for baseball. But, uh, yeah, there's nothing going on. The fields are, are lying fallow right now, and um, – if and when baseball returns and if and when minor league baseball returns, which I anticipate we'll have some sort of expanded fall league, which I know I think Josh Norris from baseball America has officially reported uh, that there are our eyes on that. Like, yeah, I'm hopefully at that point things will be wrangled enough pandemic wise that we can, we can try to do that safely. But when you're talking about any group of scouts uh, you're talking about a lot of, Older men, typically middle-aged and up, crammed in, you know, with one seat in between them in the scout section right behind home plate. And that sounds like uh, you know, a party for this disease. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know how any of that's going to happen. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I don't know. I've been going back through my video archives and trying to – I've it's hard to be on social media where these kids are posting video of themselves throwing hard and putting data. Uh, it's, it's hard to isolate that stuff from the other stuff that you see on social media. You might be on there for work looking for um, relevance, you know, Luke little throwing 105 or whatever it is. And then like, Hey, there's someone tweeting, you know, retweeting the president's dribble into your timeline. So it's a weird time to, to be doing this. Did anybody from that cricket game make your mock draft? <laughs> no, I did. I didn't. Uh, no, I didn't get anybody's. Uh, anybody? Only there were forty rounds. You know, then there'd be more depth. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. It was a lot of guys with with you know deuce bat speed and uh, and questionable. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of these guys are taking care of themselves between. Not a lot of guys getting in the cold tub after after a workout on that cricket field. It was you know just it was just a a big group of like family and friends that were looking to get out at the early onset of this thing. But um, yeah, the mocks I'll do a mock for Monday and then I'll do a mock the day of. And it, it's always interesting to go back and look at the, the last couple of years, you know, we get about six, seven, eight guys right over the course of the first round. And you can kind of no scope uh, a few second round picks either because you have a team attached to a player uh, at random which occurs sometimes, or uh, you know, just just by understanding team team tendencies. But, um, but yeah, none of those. I'm I'm interested in cricket players and tennis players as uh, as baseball developmental athletes. But the way that minor leagues are going to be reduced makes um, anything interesting like that far less likely. 
There are certain times you don't want to go to a doctor's office for a medical visit. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. And that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment's right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash White Sox for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash White Sox for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. This is a another question that's not on our already bloated rundown of questions, but <laughs> do, does... Does this uh, situation distend the resource gap for prospects uh, even more in terms of like who has access to video that they can distribute or getting in touch with Prep Baseball Report? That's a good question. Um, I think probably yeah, because most of most of the relevant data and video that can be derived from this time is occurring in facilities that have Rapsodo and um, video editing capabilities, capture and editing capabilities. And while to some degree everyone's got a uh, camera in their pockets, which is part of the reason uh, that maybe there will be some relevant change in the world here soon, um, but you don't, it's, it's different when you have the, the Rapsodo data. And yes, I think the gap between uh, those who are more and less fortunate is widened during this time because uh, it, take a guess at, at what type of person has access to a facility that has this type of tech uh, where that you can hand data to teams uh, that they consider relevant. Now, some of it can be uh, driven by the, the agent, right? If the agent wants to foot the bill for a thing like this, uh, then, then that's possible no matter the, uh, the economic situation of their client. But then the other thing to consider here is I had a, a person with a team call me last night and talk about this specifically is how much stock do you put into watching Tariq Skubal throw 100.7 one time on a six second video? You don't know how often he's throwing, you don't know how many pitches he's thrown to this point. The pitch isn't even remotely close to the strike zone. Like how much really is it moving the needle to know that Luke Little threw the ball as hard as he could off the mound with like no idea where it was going and it just happened to be 105 miles an hour? Like is that really relevant? Uh, so, you know, while the, I think that what MLB did when they, they put this measure in place where prospects could upload video was good because it prevented people from doing stuff that would probably be, that would put their health at risk, right? Like a lot of these scouts, I remember I was March 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and James, you were in Arizona during this time. I went, yeah, and, it was great. Uh, I went and saw baseball. That weekend, I went to the Boris Classic uh, here in Arizona. It was like a high school tournament for the uh, like a bunch of the schools in the Four Corners area who had Division One or draft eligible prospects of of note. And the, the Boris folks six had, days it rained in Arizona. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so it was so bizarre. And in retrospect, it was sort of we were fortunate that it did because uh, the day that it didn't rain. I went, the Boris Classic people had sandwich boards, you know, that were, that were up to absolve them of the legal risk of people catching COVID at, at the tournament. And, um, and yeah, like, I lost my train of thought now. You're right. But, um, darn it. But, uh, Let it go, James. <laughs> it was a good joke. <laughs> it was a good joke. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, like, it's just been a it's been a weird weird time and this oh yeah the scouts at that the scouts at that tournament even though we were all talking about the pandemic already at that point like what are we gonna do and some of the scouts were just like look man I'm getting in my car and I'm going to watch Dixie State scrimmage tomorrow uh, and some of it's like the steroid use like if some of them were gonna start doing it then the others were gonna have to do it you know like people are competitive if 
if uh, there were no restrictions on any of this stuff, and Carlos Colazzo from VA, or if Keith uh, Law from The Athletic, or whoever was like, you know what, I'm going to games, man. Like, I'm going to go see players. Then my, then just the way I'm built, I would be like, shit. Like, I, I, I think I'm going to go see players. Like, I, it's a thing I derive my personal identity from is is doing this job, uh, as, and as well as I can, and um, and if there was baseball to see, then against my better judgment, I, I probably would have done it. And so I think that these measures that were put in place. Where, where players could submit video uh, made it less likely that I and scouts from teams or whoever else would venture out to see them in person, which is probably good for the general health of, of people working in baseball. You mentioned that, you know, you've got a, you're going to have a mock coming out on Monday and then another one on the day of the draft based on what you know now though, who will you have the white Sox taking? Yeah, we we don't want to wait for that. (laughs) I don't want to watch the draft at all if I can help it. James James would like to get his story written up now, so that way he could just relax. Yeah, Yeah, the I'm gonna unless I have specific. Now this is more likely to be on the day of, right? Like so, the way I do it is, I start at the top of the of the the board and I work my way down and I start calling folks with teams who I know and asking them what they've heard about what's going on in front of them. I know who's advising most of the players. I can talk to the agents. Uh, I know about what teams have been in contact with them, uh, about, you know, kind of get an idea where the player's range are is. And so as you start, you get a lot of if-thens through the top 10, and then towards the middle, toward the back of, the, the, of round one, you have some instances where you have players specifically tied to teams, and then also you're trying to give uh, teams players who fit their tendencies. And then sometimes you have a falling player who you haven't tied to a team yet, but you know he's supposed to go in this range, either based on what the agent's telling you or, or just where you know this guy sort of lives on people's draft boards. Teams in the 20s are telling you that they have no hope of getting a player. You know he's probably supposed to go before then. And the White Talks are in the middle of that group where they're picking – you know, like at the early part of the middle of round one, where because of the structure of this draft, they're likely to have someone fall to them who we wouldn't anticipate them getting, whether it's Heston Kerstad or Garrett Mitchell or some, you know, Reed Detmers, some college player of value who you would have expected to go in the top 10. Uh, if there's a single surprise in that top 10, it's going to kick one of those guys who we would anticipate to go there out of the top 10. And that is when teams picking, you know, it, between 10 and 15 are going to have to decide, oh, this player we, ex- we didn't expect to be there is now there. And uh, we, let's just take them. Like they are the highest ranked player on our board. It wasn't what we anticipated that we're going to do, uh, but it's good value. And I think that that is what's likely to happen with the White Sox, and I do think it's likely to be a college player, whether it's Mick Abel, uh, the best high school pitcher in the draft, in my opinion. And I think it's generally a, a universally held opinion that Abel's the best pitcher. If he sneaks into the top 10 because the Pirates do something kind of wild or something like that, uh, then I just think that the White Sox will be waiting to scoop up whichever college player of value has fallen to them uh, unexpectedly. You mentioned the possibility of the Pirates doing something wild. Based on what you know and who you've talked to, which team are they the team that you think is most likely to do something maybe very unexpected, or is there somebody else you think could, you know, kind of throw a wrench in the gears of everybody? They the Pirates are definitely the team in the top ten that people have the least amount of feel for. They took a high school arm in the first round in the last year's draft, uh, which is sort of it flies in the face of what a lot of the front offices are doing right now. There's so much risk baked into that demographic of player uh, because, you know, high school pitchers, you're an 18, you're 18. You're probably going to take four or five years to get to the big leagues. And the chances of you getting hurt in that four or five year window are much greater than it is for the high, the college pitcher who has a two or three year window if things are working out. Uh, and so teams are, you know, you're, if you're a scouting director and your job's on the line, you're going to be risk averse. 
Uh, but the Pirates took a high school arm in last year's draft. They have a new GM. They don't know teams don't know what kind of stamp Ben Charrington is going to want to put on his first draft. And so there's just a lot of you know as far as team tendencies are concerned, um, and the Pirates picking at the tail end of what a lot of teams think is the, a top five or six uh, players in the draft. Who the Pirates value as the first guy in the next tier teams are not really sure. Uh, and so they are the one uh, mentioned as like the biggest wild card in the top 10. There are a lot of teams who have had turnover at the top. Most of them pick after the White Sox. Like Texas has taken a bunch of high school arms uh, recently and they've all had Tommy John, like all of them. Uh, and so they are thinking there might be a philosophical change there. The Phillies have a new director. There are a lot of teams in the middle of round one uh, who teams are not sure what they're going to do. The Pirates are the, the big one in the top 10. And then early on, like, you know, Baltimore might cut a deal at two, but that probably won't have repercussions for the White Sox at 10. Uh, that has repercussions for, like, um, the Blue Jays at five, the Mariners at six, the Pirates at seven, who they end up with. Uh, the Padres are always kind of a wild card to do something uh, just because of the way they operate like um they might do something kind of crazy off the board um but yeah i think that's basically it i think everybody else picking ahead of them is is pretty stable it's, it's really the pirates who at the early onset of sourcing for mock teams are just like yeah i have no idea so i guess with the overall takeaway being that you know the white Sox have been historically very college oriented in the first round uh i guess when the I guess there's the most weight behind the pick and you, you want to get it right. Uh, and you want to be, the teams can be more risk adverse. Obviously they have a new scouting director this year, but it is an internal hire as a guy who's been with them for 20 years. Do you kind of see that trend basically continuing or is there any room for a curveball or the, the local story of Ed Howard is rising into the, the top 15? Do you, do you see these as possibilities or are you, are you leaning towards general tendencies kind of winning the day here? I do think I do think that there's a possibility that they do some other stuff. Um, I think that the approach that they took last year, where they they took a college player early and then mixed in a couple of the high school arms later in Andrew Dalquist and, and Matthew Thompson, who both signed for around like one one point three million. Um, I think spreading diversifying your risk in that way. Uh, makes a lot of sense. It allows you to play in the upside high school pool uh, without the opportunity cost of giving up a stable, likely big leaguer college player in the first round. Um, you know, I don't. I, I don't think. Again, I just. I tend to think that the players who are going to be there at eleven someone who they didn't expect to be there from the college ranks is likely to have fallen. Uh, I do think at Howard, there are teams in the top 10 who think that Howard has some of the, the best upside in the draft that he showed up. Um, he had two practices this spring and that was it. So if, if you were there, that's what you have to go off of from this spring. I don't think uh, that teams should have Ed Howard off of their draft board or, uh, sliding down their draft board based on him not having played this spring. I thought that he was one of the best players, uh, it, you know, in the country last summer when he was hitting consistently well against the elite pitching in his class. I think we learned all we needed to learn about it. Howard last summer, he had a shoulder injury late last year. Um, and maybe he scared some teams off because they didn't have an opportunity to see him after it and see how he had recovered from it, uh, like if he could throw from shortstop. But yeah, like I think if they were to take Ed Howard at 11, I think that's a fine pick. Like that's where he, about where he is on my board. Uh, but I, I don't think that they're, they're likely to do it just because it's uh, the local kid. But I, I, th I do think it would be a fine pick. I, I do think that they're just going to uh, – I think that they are probably going to take a more open-minded approach. Uh, it is the, like the Jake Berger picks – that I, you know, question where it's just like, really, you know, this, this guy's very likely to end up at first base. There's a lot of downward pressure on that profile from the big league population. 
it's just really hard to to profile. You know, college college versus high school is less a concern to me than corner versus up the middle. And they've been corner heavy lately, and I think that's the problem. Not that they've been ultra conservative in the college pool, that it's been corner guys. Hey, fellow business, producer Cam here to tell you about Manscaped. With basketball potentially returning soon, the debate rages on. Who is the GOAT? One thing we do know for sure is Manscaped is the GOAT for men's grooming. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. Because of their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your snags will be reduced while designing your own triangle offense down under. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 Essentials Kit. The Perfect Package 3.0 Kit comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 Water-Resistant Cordless Body Trimmer, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag for you to use when we're done quarantining. Subscribers to the Peak Hygiene Plan get a new replacement blade refill with your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Play it safe with the Lawnmower 3.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC, all one word, at manscaped.com. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code the athletic. There's been a lot of talk, you know, about how teams, because of the way everything has worked this year and with the shortened draft, the teams are probably going to be more, you know, conservative with what they want to do, play the safer route. But, and this is just me here. I just wonder what your thoughts are. I think that that means that this is a perfect time for a team to just, you know, go for it, take the upside, simply because when we're looking at the draft as it is with five rounds, odds are, you know, you miss a lot in a draft. It's there's no sure thing in baseball, at least. Although teams are getting much better with the the advances in player development and being able to turn you know the talent into useful players. But I just feel like in a small sample size like this, where it's not like you've got a good chance of hitting five home runs with your five picks, you're kind of just hoping to maybe get one guy that turns out to be you know a solid above average major league player out of this. And if anything better is kind of you know it's it's gravy. So I feel like, t- in my opinion, that's that's a reason to say, screw it, man. I'm taking five shots. Like, okay, like you said, the White Sox, they've been too corner heavy. So maybe Ed Howard at 11 is something that, you know, might be it, something that they wouldn't normally consider. But it's it's worth it to take a, spot, a, a shot simply because he's a local prospect. He's an up-the-middle prospect. And there's a high ceiling. And I feel like if, I'm, if there's any year where I'm going to throw caution to the wind – I would argue it would be a situation like this one because most teams are probably not going to have great drafts based on the inability to scout all these players to begin with. I think that there there are certainly people in baseball who share your sentiment that that is exactly the calculus that they have made as well, is that there's no stability in this year by definition because it is just five rounds. The thing that is uh, preventing that from happening, at least en masse, is the some of the signability of the high schoolers past a certain point. Um, like there are people who have told me that they think that rounds four and five are going to be chock full of sleeper senior signs who teams are offering 25 or 30 K to, to get them to sign in round four or five so that they can fit a high schooler to, or two into their first three picks. Um, so doing the, making the financial puzzle pieces fit together with your draft pool is preventing teams from taking five of the best players available with all of their picks and throwing caution to the wind as far as whether some or all of them are high schoolers. There's just not, uh, the, the pool space to do that, um, without making a concession on a couple of your picks by, signing uh, seniors basically for, for 20 K. So uh, I think that, I think that what there are interesting paths that a, a team or two might be able to take because there is an interesting player or two or three who is imminently signable because he's a senior and you can take that player early and then reallocate the pool space that you save to high schoolers in rounds three, four, five. Uh, that would That is not unlike what the White Sox did last year where they ended up with Thompson and Dahlquist. Um, 
it is the high schoolers who that teams like the White Sox have signed on day three for 200, 400, 600K, the Bryce Bushes of the world, the DJ Gladneys of the world. Those are the high school players who I don't know where they end up going if they have a home in this year's draft. Those are the types of players who I think just end up going to college. You don't have time to reconvene before day three of the draft, assess how much pool space you have, match it with the signability of players that you like who are still available on day three, and take a couple guys like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's an interesting time to do something like cut an underslot deal with a value college player in round one, then take a senior that you really like, like let's say Landon Knack, right? Have you guys Googled Landon Knack and looked at his stats? This is like a senior at Eastern Tennessee State or something like that who threw 25 innings this spring and struck out like 50 guys. Uh, he's a senior. If you, if you have pitch data on this guy and think he's a quick moving reliever and can cut a crazy underslot deal with him in round two or in the comp round or whatever, and then say, oh, we have this much of our pool left and we can sign two high schoolers. Now like, now you've collected four real prospects in five rounds uh, because of the way you put the puzzle pieces together. The problem is that there is only one Landon Knack in this draft, if you like him, uh, and that there are maybe you know only a couple guys like that who you can execute a strategy like that with. Um, so... It is, it is kind of tenuous like because then you're biting your fingernails hoping that the guy that you like who you can do this with gets to you in round two or whenever it is you're trying to get this done. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting year for sure. And I, I agree with you that there's just more risk this year. You got a staff of, unless you're the Angels, you have a staff of 20 scouts or so in the room and you're going to draft five players. And, yeah, why not take some big swings? What was the name? Get the prospect's name. Andrew Knack. Landon. 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 Yeah, Landon Knack. Knack. Right, I'm gonna. I'll Google that when we're done because I have not done that. All right. Uh, how this year the with the five round draft? You know, there's the twenty thousand. You know, market. I guess is the way to do it with the undrafted players. How, how do you see that playing out? Because like on the one hand. It's kind of like I, I cover college football is for a living. So for me, I see it as like this is going to be like college in which you have to recruit players simply because, right. you know, you, your player development reputation. So it's going to be like when they bring a high schooler to their campus and they're like, hey, look at our facilities. It's like MLB teams essentially going to be doing that kind of same deal with the undrafted players at this point. Yes. The uh, I've already spoken with folks in player dev. I've spoken with agents. And there's a symbiotic relationship there because the agents want their players to reach the big leagues because that is how the player and the agent gets paid. And the player dev staff knows that they can acquire more talent by saying like, Hey, we're the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is our track record of turning players into big leaguers. Come sign with us, not with this other team that's clearly struggling with it. The problem for, the problem with that is that the teams who are better at uh, player dev are, especially with how many minor league players you can realistically roster here as the minor leagues get uh, macheted in, you know, into half, the, the players who are good at scouting and player dev have less room on the margins for the types of players who are going to be willing to sign for 20K. Um, but, uh, but yes, I think in general the cream of the crop of the undrafted free agents are absolutely going to be wooed by these teams who have coherent player development um, and who can recruit, basically. I think that is absolutely go going to happen. And teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees uh, and um, the, you know, like the Reds, Kyle Bodie is, is now the Reds pitching coordinator. You think that that guy is not uh, an elite recruiting tool for the Reds with these 20K arms that they want to sign after the draft? I think he absolutely mm -hmm. will be. Um, and yeah, so there was, a, there was a point in time before we knew the structure of this draft when there, there was some thought that there might be like, like the Rule 5 draft where teams might be able to keep drafting if they wanted to or pass and end their draft. Um, and that the the player dev folks were going to have to be intimately involved with the process because at some point you're going to have to know when 
the player that you were about to take was or wasn't better than what you already have in your system. You ha essentially have to decide in that moment, is this player that we can draft right now better than the guy who we would cut from our minor league system in order to roster this player? Uh, and I think that there's still some of that decision-making that has to occur. It just gets to occur after the draft now over a longer period of time. Um, and I do think that the dev folks have just been more involved in the room lately anyway, and that they're going to, this emphasizes their role in picking the players uh, going forward because they're going to be recruiting. They're going to be helping identify players that they can change for the better and, uh, and have some idea of what is already in the system that they might be able to improve on, especially as roster spots become uh, more valuable as there are less of them. Speaking of player dev, uh, I just felt like we'd be remiss to have you on and not provide catnip to our listeners by uh, <laughs> asking you to kind of talk about the uh, kind of swing adjustments that you had written about with Luis Robert in your write-up with him uh, this year and why it kind of keyed uh, the success we saw him have and, and, and possibly... I remember meeting you in spring training in 2019 and I was talking about Luis Robert and you said very specifically, like... We know that he's extremely talented. We don't know if he's any good yet. And that was before, obviously, he had played or had any stateside success of any consequence. So I know that you've been tracking what he's done since then. So I thought just asking you what you see differently about his game now uh, would, would make our, our listeners feel better uh, at this time where they're probably extremely stressed out and miserable. Yeah. Um, yeah, that first day where I was lucky enough that I saw him with the Cuban national team. They did a Pan Am League tour uh, like the summer before he defected. And at that time, he had, he had been rumored. I had you know, some international directors at that point telling me that he had already been rumored to have tried to leave and was caught leaving. Uh, and like, he looked heavy when I had seen when I saw him. The, the player that you and I saw that that first week when they had minicamp looked nothing physically like the guy that I saw on that Pan Am team. He was so he, – he is maybe the best body of any baseball player I've ever seen. And the, the power in BP, the feel in center field, which I got to see a lot of early on when, because of the thumb and hamstring stuff, and he was rehabbing a lot in Arizona. I just like got to see a bunch of him because of him being hurt and rehabbing. His instincts in center field are so good and he is so fast and has such a great arm. Like it was so clear that this is just one of the most talented baseball players on the planet. And yet he was chasing and there were, I would compare the swing to like early on to Delman Young where he was, he could do damage out and away from him and struggle to turn on stuff in and was rolling over a lot of stuff. He just couldn't get the barrel to, to part of the zone in where he could punish the baseball with lift uh, to his pull size. He could go down and get some balls down and pull them, uh, but most of the damage he was doing out and away from him was to the opposite field. And while that was like visually pleasing, and it's good that he has the ability to do that, there was just a limited part of the zone where he could truly do uh, damage with power. And it seemed like to me, and without like looking at video right now to try to explicitly describe what changed visually, I would just, it's like his attack angle changed in such a way that it, it better enabled him to turn on pitches uh, and unlock some of that raw power in games. I think it's real. I think he still has a problem with chasing pitches out of the zone that he's going to have to adjust to. But that's a problem. I've compared him to, to Starling Marte a lot because they are physically very similar and have sort of the same deficiencies. There are people in baseball who think um, when you line up uh, Luis Robert and Joe Adele, that because Robert is a lock to stay up the middle, uh, that he should be ahead of Adele on all of these universal prospect lists. And then you have people who think that Adele's swing and miss issues are more uh, swing-derived and that Luis Roberts are more approach-derived. And there are various schools of thought as to whether one of those can be fixed and the other cannot. Um, 
so yeah, like it's a sign to me that the that the White Sox player dev has changed for the better and is improving. That uh, finally on the pitching side, over the last year and a half or so, there were some improvements, and that a change like this from an athlete like this uh, was made and and is really relevant to his production. And so yeah, like um, I think it was it was a big deal to see, and that the results were real. And it's just about whether or not he can lay off of pitches out of the zone against uh, big leaguers, which I think, you know, we, we won't know until we see. Now, now that we've given our listeners some Luis Robert catnip, let's, let's divide them, James. Let's, let's ask about the most divisive prospect in the White Sox system. What is Nick Madrigal going to be? And was he worth taking with that early in the, in the draft that year? Yeah, I, when you look at the, the Madrigal eggs of Velos. By the way, if people listening to this don't know, all of the minor league average and max exit velos are on the board over at Fangrass. It's the only place um, publicly that has widespread uh, minor league exit velocity data that I I source locally. It's all organic. Um, Yeah, with with, uh, the Magic Man's exit velos are low. They are in the type of territory that is like um, Nicky Lopez, and uh, David Fletcher, and like close to the bottom of the 2080 scale. If you were going to 2080, everyone's exit below his Madrigals would basically be like a 30. Neat. But he also had the lowest swinging strike rate in in the minors last year at like a two two and a half percent. I think it was like it's it's incredible. It is the top of the scale from a bat control perspective. He can't beat this guy in the zone. You just, you cannot. And so some of these players who have been sneaky, valuable, even though they don't have power, like David Fletcher, go look at the, the, the wins above replacement that David Fletcher has produced over like a season and a half. Like he's basically performed like a 55 or 60. Um, this, is, this is what I think that Madrigal is going to be, right? It is just an elite contact rate with a plus defense at second base. He's a good base runner. He plays a premium position. Second base has sneakily been uh, – the, the offensive bar at second base has actually been lower on average than at shortstop over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a permanent thing. I don't know if that has to do with uh, the way shifting is interacting with our defensive positions. If bigger bodies with more power can play a more viable shortstop now, that might still yet uh, come to second base even though it hasn't totally yet. We might see more guys like Max Muncy and Travis Shaw playing second base soon, and maybe the offensive bar at second base will start to rise, uh, and this won't hold true for very long. But you're talking about a guy who makes elite contact and plays uh, impact defense at a premium defensive position. So, yeah, I still think that this guy is an uh, all-star in terms of wins above replacement value. Is he going to hit for power? No. No, I don't think so. And I think you can look at it from the other way uh, and like look at a guy like Jose Iglesias who has also made elite rates of contact uh, and plays incredible defense at a premium position and has basically been a 45 on the scale, right? Um, so you know the gap between what makes Luis Arias and David Fletcher really valuable and what makes Jose Iglesias a minor league free agent is pretty narrow. And so he's right, you know, he's existing in that continuum right now. I think he's going to fall on the, the David Fletcher, Luis Arias, like this is the type of guy who the industry has typically undervalued. Uh, and like Keith thinks that he's more of the Jose Iglesias type where he's uh, a good role player and that sort of it. Awesome. <clears throat> well, so that's, yeah, that that's a much more, optimistic take than we got from keith law a couple months ago when we asked him the same questions eric thank you very much listeners you could read him at fangraphs.com and you could follow him on twitter at long and hagen eric thank you very much for joining us and uh, hopefully you've got more than cricket to watch here soon yeah fingers crossed guys thanks for having me on i really appreciate it thanks for being here I'd like to thank eric again for joining us and for giving us like 40 minutes of his time james yeah, uh, very, very generous of him, but also it, 
it, it, it scans with the thorough nature that he has always uh, exuded. When I first met Eric in person, he was trying to position himself on the backfields of the White Sox complex so he could see three fields at once. It was extremely comical to watch. But he kept uh, <laughs> he kept scribbling notes on all three fields. So I, I, th- theoretically, it worked. Uh, again, you could you could read Eric's work at Fangrass.com, which is probably a site that you're you're accustomed to or at least know exists. Or you could follow him at Twitter at Longenhagen. That's L-O-N-G-E-N-H-A-G-E-N. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's about it for today's show, James. Uh, so we've, about it's it. It's about it. That's, I mean, just another short 50 some odd minute episode of White Sox business. Hopefully, you know, getting people through the day. Uh, it's time for shout outs. Mine's pretty simple. I am going to shout out Run the Jewels, who released their new album this week. And thankfully, because I, I could I was really happy to have it. That's it. That's your explanation. Yeah, no, it's a good album. I've listened to it a few times already. It was just, you know, it was. It's a very apropos album for the moment. I'll say that for sure. Uh, let's see. I guess there's a lot of causes people could donate to, and you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, both some damage from uh that, that people are responding to, but just also with you know COVID nineteen going on and uh, the need, I, I would say I would shout out to the uh, Pilsen Food Pantry. It's run by the Figueroa Foundation and uh, Dr. Evelyn Figueroa. Um, if you're looking for some place to support, that's probably a good good place to go to because uh, what they're doing and, and providing food and, and Pilsen is a uh, really important. So uh, that that's that's the first shout out I could think of off the top of my head. Absolutely no preparation. As my. My donation suggestion is the Chicago Community Bond Fund. I feel like that could be helpful. That sounds good too. Yeah. So, or just you know, give 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 something if you can, or if you can't, don't worry about it. Just help out in other ways. Uh, and also continue listening to White Sox business because that helps James. Because James needs to be listened to, or else he gets kind of whiny. You, I mean, another potential donation is you could leave a like unmarked, unmarked. Plat paper bag full of like forty thousand cash on like the corner of Sheridan and Hollywood, and tell me when you're going to do it, and I'll be there within five minutes and pick it up. <laughs> James's Venmo is always open, and uh, we'll, we'll old talk- school Venmo. <laughs> we'll talk- yes, <laughs> the non-taxable guide. Uh, we'll talk to you next week on White Sox business. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Eric, and I guess thanks to Cam for being there too. <laughs>